What we're doing, we're going through, we're in our last section of Haggai. Uh, so we've been working through this book just in three short parts. And um, uh, we're finishing off today, end of chapter two. Um, we're working through those verses. Please, take, please keep your Bibles open in front of you. And just follow me through the text as we, as we work through it. That's going to be enormously helpful, uh, both to you and to me. And uh, also, there's just a sermon handout on your tables. So if you want to make notes, um, please feel free. There's also a section on the back that is there just in case you want to ask a question or make a comment at the end of the sermon. There's an opportunity to do that. Um, so please do feel free to make use of that if you'd like to. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to pray uh, and then we're going to have a look at Haggai 2, verses 10, right to the end, 23. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the songs that we've been singing this morning. Thank you that we can rejoice in uh, our rock and our redeemer, Jesus Christ, who has saved us, who has taken all of our sin and shame. And we pray, Father, that this morning, as we see him uh, all the more clearly, that we would then want to build our lives and his church on him as our rock. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two men, they wanted to build a house. The first man took his materials. He found a spot on a rock. And although it was hard work, he dug down deep into the rock. And he laid the foundations in that rock of his house. Now he built everything else from there. It took time. It wasn't easy. But the house stood firm. So one day the rain came, the floods came, the wind blew, and it beat the house. But the house did not fall because it's had its foundation deep in the rock. The second man, he came along, and as far as we know, he had the same materials, he had the same dimensions, but he chose a different spot. Now, nothing wrong with it on the, on the face of things. Lovely kind of picturesque view, not too far from the sea, he chose to build his house on the sand. No digging required, really. Not a huge amount of effort. There was no foundation to the house. The man just gets building, and there it is. Now, it's fine. It looks great. But the thing is, when the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew, and beat against the house, the house, we're told, fell. And great was the fall of it. Now, you may know that story. You can read about it in Matthew's Gospel or Luke's Gospel. The point of the story is this. How we build matters. How we build matters. Clearly, the story tells us, doesn't it? What matters is not the materials. It's not the method. It's not the person building. 
It's not the time it takes. It's not the process. What matters is the foundation. What matters is the base of our building. That is what matters. And that is the message that Haggai brings to the people in this final section of the book. So if you've been here through the series, then we know that Haggai, the book is all about building. That the, the people, they've been brought back from exile, God has moved them, and what they're building is the temple. They're building God's temple. And last week we saw that the people were really discouraged. Chapter 2, verse 3, uh, they, they look at their work, it, it looks like nothing. And Haggai, the prophet, comes along and he gives the people two great promises. He says, God is with you, so keep going. And he says, there's greater glory to come. So even though this doesn't look like much, it really is worthwhile. Keep going. Now this week, what we see is the people seem to take that advice. They get on and they keep building. And they keep building God's temple. They've heard these promises and they're building and they're building and they're building. And two months later, according to verse 10, so it's a kind of two-month break, Haggai comes along, verse 10, two months later, he comes to them and even though they're building and they're building and they're building, they're doing all the work, Haggai's message to them says, look, you've lost some focus here. You're going about this in the wrong way. And that really matters. Now, it's not that they foolishly placed the temple on some physical sand. Okay, we know that. It's not that they don't have a physical foundation. That's there. That's holding the temple in place. The problem is that whilst they're building, and they're building, and they're building, and they're getting on this work, they have forgotten about God. They're working... But in their work, they have lost sight of him. And Haggai comes to them and says, look, that really matters. That's really serious. Because your foundation for building is, is him. It must be based on a real relationship with God. And because that matters, we know, don't we, that this, mas- this message is true for us today. Now, we're not in the same situation. Okay, so they are building, these people here, they're building a physical temple with bricks and and stones. We, on the other hand, as Paul really helpfully pointed out at the start of the service, we're building a spiritual temple, the church. It's not made of bricks and stones. It's made up of people who belong to Jesus Christ. And so we build not so much with our hands, but we build with our our words, our, our, our ministries, our prayers, we build in that way. So the nature of God's temple has changed, but what matters remains the same. Just like these people here, all of our building, all of our work here at Christchurch Camborne must be based on a real relationship with God. And more specifically for us, it must be based on Christ. He is our foundation. He is our rock. So we must not only build our lives on him, but his church on him. Now, the obvious reason for that 
is precisely because it is his church. So without Jesus, the church doesn't exist. So of course we need to base our, our building on him, but Haggai comes to them and he really gives them three reasons why we must do this. Okay, why must we build on Christ? Well, Haggai says, without him, our work is worthless. That's the first reason. Secondly, there are some really serious consequences to not building on him. And finally, we are people that represent him in this earth. We, we, we show something of him, so of course our work must be based on him. Okay, so those are the three reasons. We're going to work through them. Three reasons for Christ-based building, and we'll take each one of those in turn. So the first thing we see is worthless work. Okay, worthless work. That's the first thing we see. So Haggai comes again, and he approaches the priests. Okay, so specifically the priests. These were people who, uh, who would bring the people to God. So you have all these people, and a priest would, would bring the people to God through sacrifices and ceremonial washing, and then the priest would speak about God to the people. Okay, and, and one of their jobs really was to know a lot about the law. They knew the book of the law inside out. And so Haggai comes to them and he asks questions about the law. And you see the first one there in verse 11. Just have a look at that. Verse 11. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil, or other food, does it become consecrated? And the priest answered, no. So you see, the priests, they know that they, they could not make something clean or acceptable to God by themselves. That's what's going on there, just through touch. So you see here, they, they would have had some meat that was consecrated. Okay, so what that means is meat that was set apart for God. According to the law, this would have been acceptable to God, and they would have used it as an offering. They would have offered it to God as a sacrifice, and it was clean in his sight. He was more than happy with that. But you can't just take this meat and then touch other things, and suddenly they are also clean. Okay, if people could do that, then actually you'd have no need for God. Only God can make things clean and acceptable in his sight. However, whilst cleaning cannot be passed on, dirtiness or defilement can. Have a look at verse 13. Then Haggai said, well, if, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest said, it, it becomes defiled. So if objects came into contact with a dead body, something that was unclean before God, those things would then be considered also unclean. They would be unacceptable before God. You couldn't then offer those to God. Okay, so they're not clean before him. You'd have to go through this, this process of kind of washing. Now look, you, you can read all about this. This is all clearly laid out in the book of Leviticus. But, but if you can't quite grasp what's going on here, I, I find my head a, a bit hard to get around this. You can use a modern day example to see kind of how obvious this is. All right, so take, for example, your hands. Okay, if you wash your hands and they're clean, you can't touch a dirty surface and it suddenly becomes clean. Do you see? It, it, the, the surface has to be washed. It has to go through this process of washing. You can't just do that by putting your hand on there, your clean hand, and magic, magically it's clean. 
Okay, instead, if you put your clean hand on, on the dirty surface, what happens? You lift your hand up and, and your hand is dirty. Okay, so you get the idea here that the people themselves, they cannot make something clean before God by anything they do, but dirtiness spreads through them. Okay, it's contagious like that. And Haggai, having said all this, then says, verse 14, so it is with these people. So it is with these people in this nation in my sight. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Do you hear what he's saying? What, what they do, their work, it's not acceptable to me at all. Now, why? Because the people aren't either. So it is with my people, he says. These people, do you see what he's saying? These people are like a dead body. They're unclean in my sight. And because everything they, they come into contact with is then affected, so is their work. It's unclean in my sight. The work is, is, is worthless. Now, we might still think at this point, well, but, but why? But, but why? These people seem to be doing the right thing, don't they? They're still working, verse 14. That's exactly what God wants them to do. They're making offerings, verse 14. That's, that's also what God wants them to do. But the problem is they are like a dead body, which means that even though they're doing these things, they must simply be doing them through the process of, of doing them. They're making their offerings, yes. They're doing their work, yes. But as they do so, they're never actually, genuinely coming to God. Only he can make them clean, Leviticus 22. They need to come to him. But amongst their, in amongst their tasks, they're just not doing that. They have no desire for a relationship with God at all. Now, that's sometimes bound up with losing the sight of holiness of God. So they simply think it's okay to do this um, because their view of God is too small. They, they think they can just get on and get on and go on and, and God just won't mind whatsoever. But in reality, God hates that. He hates the fact that we would not come to him for ourselves before we would do any work. And their deadness, it impacts all that they do, doesn't it? They themselves, they can't make their work acceptable to God. The fact that they have forgotten him means, verse 14, whatever they do, whatever they do, it's defiled. Their work before God, it's, it's worthless. I guess it is just like the man who builds on the sand, isn't it? So he may have well worked really hard, he, he may have used the best materials that there were. He may be the most enthusiastic, committed builder that there is. On the outside, the house may well look like the best house you've ever seen, but it has no foundation. It looks great, but ultimately it is not acceptable. It's worthless. And the problem is, it is so easy for us to do this. It, we want to be useful, don't we? We want to serve. We want to build God's church. But in it all, we can so easily just forget God. So we, we, 
we may well just come here and, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I've had times in my life like this. You come here, you just go through the motions. And it's not that, that, that keeping God at the centre is too much of an effort for us. God has done everything that we would come to him. I think the problem is, is more so much that as long as we forget him, we just go about exalting ourselves. Now that might feel great for a time, but do you see, it's worthless. It's not acceptable to God. Now we see this in the Gospels, don't we? So um, think about the time Jesus is with his disciples. Um, they're, they're, they're eating the Passover meal. And Jesus gets up, and what he, what he does is he pours some water into a basin, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter says to him, do you remember what Peter says to Jesus? He says, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus. Now that might seem like a really humble and, 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 and good thing to say. Maybe it's like, well, you know, I respect this guy so much, but I don't want him to wash my feet. But Jesus says, look, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Jesus says, until I serve you, you cannot serve me. But that's the point. And if you were to read the whole of John 13, you would see that Jesus' act of washing is, is pointing to the cross. Okay, so that is where we then must go. That's where we are washed clean. That's where we are made holy. It's not through what we do. It never is. It's through Jesus Christ taking the judgment that we deserve and giving us his perfect life. And only as we go there are we then able to serve him. Now look, if you've never done that before, you need to know this. You need to know that you may have lived what you consider a very good life. You may go to church regularly, but without Christ, your work is worthless before God. It counts for nothing. Without Jesus, you are like a dead body. And anything you do is, is, is like filthy rags before him. But then, for those of us who have come to Christ, even as people who, who've come to him, who've put our trust in him, we can only ever... Did I turn that off? Sorry. So as people who trust in Christ, we need to keep going to Christ. We need to keep um, going to him. Now just have a look at these words from 1 Corinthians. This is what it says in the New Testament about this. So we are fellow workers in God's service. We are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. Here you go, mate. Um, a, wi a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other, one, other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. You see, we must only ever build on Christ and not just doing what he wants to do, what he wants us to do but doing it as his fellow workers, constantly then going to him, seeking him, handing our work over to him as the one who gives the growth.
Now, that's, I guess that's obvious at church. I think it, it applies outside of church as well. So at home or in our day-to-day jobs, the only way we can serve Jesus, really, remember, it's not about what we do, is it? Okay, the only way we can serve Jesus in those times is flowing out of a genuine relationship with Jesus. So we must keep going to him and going to him. Now, as long as we fail to do that, it's not, o- it, 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 it's not that we won't be saved, but what we're doing is worthless before God. And more than that, it has some serious consequences. So here's the second thing we see this morning. Crucial consequences. Here's the second thing we see. Crucial consequences. Okay, crucial consequences. Second thing we see. So having pointed out to the people that they are like dead bodies without a relationship with God, Haggai now spells out the consequences of their actions. Now he does that both negatively and he does it positively by reminding them of what happened before, pointing them back to a different time. So first we see the reminder of a negative consequence. Just have a look at verse 15. Verse 15, he says, Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. So he's saying, think back, he's saying, to Haggai chapter 1. That's the time he's referring to. It was a time where the building work had started. Okay, so they're laying one stone on another. But at that time, Haggai chapter 1, as as Paul said to us again, the people were too busy for God. They, they They were living their own lives, but they'd forgotten about God. And at that point, look at what happened to them in verse 16. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. You see, this was a time when the people, they didn't want to know God. And what did God do? He opposed them. He frustrated their work. They never really prospered. God saw to it that despite their work, there wasn't any fruit. And even in the midst of that, they wouldn't turn back to God. That was the issue. They didn't want him. Yet, it wasn't always like that. So Haggai points them to a different time in their history. Have a look at verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when, you, uh, when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. So this was a different time. This is actually a time before Haggai came along. The people originally came up to build the temple. You can read about this in Ezra chapter 1 to 3. And that was the point where the people had been rescued from exile and they were coming back to start the building. And it's there, when they laid the foundation, as you read those chapters, what's really clear is the people loved their God. They were seeking him, they were praising him, they were giving everything to him. And at that point in history, we see the people at their best. They were living for their faithful God, really going for it, really wanting him. And what happened? Verse 19... Is there, any, uh, is, the, is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day, the day they lay their foundation, the day they're seeking him, from this day 
I will bless you. You see, at the time where God's people were building based on him, there was this promise of blessing. Blessing that will enable them and enrich their lives, a blessing of fruit, a blessing that, that God gives them, gives to them in abundance. And you see, what's going on here then is Haggai is telling them to think about the past so that they might know that, that there are consequences to their actions now. He's saying, look, you're like a dead body now. Think about that. When you've done that before, how's that gone for you? God's worked against you, hasn't he? Think about the times where you devoted to me. Well, I've been for you in every way. I've blessed you abundantly. I want you to think about that so that you might then turn to me now. And what we see here is, is what's really clear here is these are blessings and curses that affect the whole of their lives, aren't they? So it's not that God says, you don't want me, so I'm not going to bless your work on the temple. No, it's everything they live for, everything they live on will be affected. And this is about uh, how they're about, they relate to the sovereign God, the maker of heaven and earth. So these are not minor consequences, these are crucial consequences. Now we ought not to be surprised by this, it's not to be a shock, so the Old Testament is absolutely full of this pattern, that when the people of God were devoted to him, he promised blessing, when they were rejecting him, he promised curses, and he acted on both of those uh, times. That's why they ended up in exile in the first place, because despite the warnings, they were constantly turning away from God. And as we said, he wants them to think about this, he lovingly, turns, he lovingly tells them so they might turn back to him now. The really sad thing is that even after Haggai goes, the people fail to do that. So the people do finish building, but their relationship with God is much as the same as you, you see it here. And so that is why God eventually, hundreds of years later, sent Jesus Christ. So his people would not turn to him. His people were under a curse. And so God sent his son for them. And what do we see of him? Well, he was the true Israel, wasn't he? He, he was the one who, who perfectly obeyed with his whole life. And what was the consequence of that? Well, Jesus is eternally blessed. He's now exalted at the right hand of God. And more than that, because he obeyed for us, because he obeyed for these people here, it's in him that we now have every spiritual blessing. God blesses us, not because of us, but because of Jesus. His perfect life is ours. It's not based on our performance. We have every spiritual blessing in Christ. He's given us everything. Now, that is really good news, isn't it? That's really good news. What it doesn't mean is that life will be perfect or easy now. So we follow a saviour who suffered. We should expect that. But it also doesn't mean that though we have all the blessing of Christ, all the blessing of God spiritually, it doesn't mean that we simply now can live how we like and expect that there won't be any consequences the fact that we have every spiritual blessing now means that we should strive 
to put Jesus at the centre of our lives in the church. And the New Testament makes it really clear that where we don't do that, there are consequences. So yes, our salvation is secure, but forgetting Christ still has crucial consequences. Have a look at these words in James, probably well known to most of us. James says, look, God opposes the proud, but he shows favour to the humble. So God actually works against us or for us, depending on our attitude towards him. So pride, that is thinking that we can do it on our own. That's opposed by God. So it's not that God hates pride or just hates pride. He actually works against it. Now that seems obvious, doesn't it, when when we come to building a church and making disciples, because this is God's work, it's God's house. Of course we must submit ourselves to him. Of course we must rely on him, be humble. We must do things his way to experience favour in this work. I'm not sure exactly how that works out, I'm not sure what that looks like, but the principle we see in Haggai is not necessarily a a shortage of food, but it's certainly that our efforts are frustrated. That if we don't want God, then we often don't get the things that we want. There's also a lack of fruit here in Haggai. So we work and work and work, but if if we're going against God, there won't be any lasting fruit to show. It's only as we submit ourselves to him, as we build based on him, that God will show us favor and that he will use our feeble efforts. And these consequences are really crucial, aren't they? Not just because we want to see fruit now, but because of what will happen in the end. You know, the passage from, uh, we, that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 3, it exhorts us to build on Christ and says that so long as we don't, in the end, our work will just be burned up. On the last day, it will be destroyed. We will be saved, but our work will be destroyed. It's not just that our work is outside of Christ is worthless now before God, but it will be proved worthless on the last day. What, what, what a dreadful consequence for us to face. I guess, again, it is just like the man who builds on the sand. The house might stand for a while, but as the rain and the storms and the wind comes, what happens to the house? It just falls down. And what God is saying here in Haggai chapter 2 is, don't wait until then to find out what will happen. So don't go through life thinking, well, I might be seeking Christ and I might be okay on the last day. He's saying, think. Think about times when you've rejected me. Think about times when you're seeking me. And seek me now. As you build, build on Christ now because the consequences are crucial. Judgment is coming. And on that day, it's not just our work at stake. It is more than that. It's God's reputation. Here's the last thing we see this morning. Uh, last reason to build with Christ as the base, and that is that we are royal representatives. Royal representatives. So having laid out the consequences, Haggai comes to the people a second time. Uh, it's kind of as if he's said what he needed to say, and then he comes back saying, by the way, there's just one more thing that I need to say to you, one more reason to build, and He has the coming judgment in in mind. Have a look there at verse 21. Haggai comes, he says, verse 21, tells Rubble, the governor of Judah, that I am going to shake the heavens 
and the earth. Now we saw almost exactly the same wording last week in verse 6. God is going to act in this world, shaking it, I guess like you might shake some rice in a sieve. Okay? And at that time, there will be a judgment against all those who belong to God. Even those who look like the strongest and most powerful on earth will fall. Have a look at verse 22. This is God's promise. He says, at that point, I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. See, those who look like they're in power will be overthrown. Now, that must be an encouragement to these people because you remember when they returned from exile, they were surrounded by opposition. People hated their work. They tried to stop their work. The king was against them. They couldn't do much. And the promise is, look, whatever those people look like, whatever those people do now, their reign will not last. They will be overthrown. Now, the promise last week was that as that happens, God's people will not be shaken. They belong to God's kingdom and it is completely secure. They're safe from his judgment. But more than that, on that day, something special will happen to God's chosen leader. Have a look at verse 23. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. Now that sounds a bit odd, doesn't it? Zerubbabel, God's leader of these people, will be made like a signet ring, like God's signet ring. Now, a signet ring in the Bible, sounds odd, but signet ring in the Bible is usually, it belonged to a king. And what it did, it contained the mark of authority. So it was something that represented the king. So the idea was, is if a king sent something out, okay, what he'd do is he'd seal it with his signet ring. And as people received this, they knew that it was from the king, that it had the authentic authority of the king. The signet represented the king. And here, God promises to make Zerubbabel a person like his signet ring, which I guess means when judgment comes, Zerubbabel will be standing there representing God's authority. In that sense, he he is this royal representative. He's representing the king on judgment day. So as everything is being shaken, as, as everyone looks on and sees everything else fading away and falling around, they see this one man who is completely secure. And they think, here is a man who belongs to God, who has been chosen by God, because he's untouched. He is a royal representative. Now, you see the reason for that in verse 23, as I've just said, is because God has chosen him. That's God's decision. But why is it that the promise is made specifically to Zerubbabel? Why is he chosen amongst everyone else? Well, he was the leader of these people, so that may have given him a privileged position. But even then, we, we, we... we know, don't we, that he was the same as everyone else. So he's lost focus like everyone else. Zerubbabel is included in in this nation that's defiled in verse 14. All the other words of Haggai are directed to Zerubbabel, so he wasn't better than anyone else at all. But there is something unique about him. And what's unique about him is he's part of the line of Christ. 
So if you look at Matthew chapter 1, you don't need to turn there now, but if you read it when you get home, you see that Zerubbabel descends from David. He has royal blood in him. And as you go on, the descendants of Zerubbabel end with another king, Christ. And I think that's why we get this specific promise to him, because ultimately it's fulfilled in one of his royal descendants, in Jesus Christ. So God's promise to shake the heavens and the earth will happen at the end of time when this creation is made new. We saw that last week, don't we? And at, this, at that time, every eye will see one man who's secure, Jesus Christ. He's the true king. And he's the one. He'll be standing there showing, displaying God's authority to the rest of the world as they are shaken and overthrown. And that's the reason we keep building on him now. Yeah, as we've already said, and is plain here, only what is built on Christ will last. Only what is built on Christ will stand in the judgment. But more than that, we now represent Christ. So the New Testament describes us as ambassadors for Christ as collectively as a city on a hill, a holy nation, a royal priesthood. That is, we now represent God to the people around us. We are, we are royal representatives that declare the praises of God to a watching world. So there is a sense in which we have now been made like Christ's signet ring, the church. We represent the authority of God on this earth. So as we build on Christ... It's not just because it's worthwhile. It's not just because of the consequences, but it's so that everybody looking on at the church now can see that Christ is the king. So people look at the church and they are to see that, they, they look at these people and think, hang on a minute, these people have a king that they love and they submit to and I can see that it is the most secure place that this world can offer. We represent Christ in that way. So never mind the man who builds his house upon the sand. What's most obvious about the man who builds upon his house upon the rock is that he's built upon the rock. You know, people look at it and they think, that's different because I see that it will last. And so now we keep building on Christ. All we, all we do should be about him, in relationship with him. If we lose that, if we try to become attractive somehow, we actually lose everything. And we actually become less attractive. Because it really is the only place we can stand in the end. Christ is the only thing that will last. And so we want to be people who represent him now. We want to be people who build based on Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he is the foundation of the church and the foundation of every single one of us who has come to him. Father, we praise you that he is 
our rock and our redeemer. And Father, we pray that all that we do will be flowing from a right relationship with him, seeking him, that our work may be worthwhile and fruitful and our work may last for eternity. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we probably have a bit of time for discussion, but not necessarily questions. So let's, yeah, let's have a couple of minutes of discussion, and then we'll sing. Uh, so why don't, why don't you just talk about this on your tables for uh, two, three minutes?